1: Са двора подъезд известный под названием Черный ход В том подъезде, как в поместье проживает Черный кот. Он в усышку прячь, темнота ему как щит, все коты поют и плачут.
0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Sean Gillory. Every podcast, I talk to an author about their new book on Russia or Eurasia. In this episode, I spoke to Doug Rogers about his book, The Old Faith in the Russian Land, A Historical Ethnography of Ethics in the Urals. One of my own research interests concerns the ways communities establish and regulate ethical practice. Ethics concerns the ways groups define what is proper, good, and virtuous, and how their practice constitutes identities and subject positions. This is why I was attracted to Doug Rogers' The Old Faith in the Russian Land. I was not disappointed. By blending history with ethnography, Rogers carefully uncovers how the old believer community in the small Russian town of Sepich renegotiated its ethical practices in regard to religious ritual, labor, gender, and generation in three historical moments, the abolition of serfdom, the establishment of Soviet power, and the collapse of communism. His findings not only point to the resilience of old belief in maintaining its convictions and practices, but also its adaptability to the pressures of modernity. So for more on ethics and its history in Seppage, I give you my interview with Doug. Hi, Doug. Hi, Sean. Welcome to New Books in Russian Eurasian Studies. Thank you for having me. Uh, Thanks for taking the time to talk about your book, The Old Faith in the Russian Land, A Historical Ethnography of Ethics in the Urals.
1: Oh, you're welcome.
0: All right, well, just to start, why don't you tell us a bit about yourself and how you got into studying ant- the anthropology of Russia?
1: Um, well, I guess this goes back to my undergraduate days. I, I was an undergraduate at Middlebury College and, um, and taking courses in anthropology and, and, um, and continuing to take Russian after high school. And this, the two sort of merged with a third interest of mine at the time, which was was religion, and I have, somewhat to my horror, been writing the same book ever since. Um, the first time I, I, I did some research on old believers was actually for my senior thesis in college. I was spending a semester at Moscow State University and, and got to know some Russian scholars, um, archaeographers, who um, are some of the most well-known scholars of old belief in Russia. And they invited me on an expedition with them in the summer of 1994 um, to go visit old believer communities in the Perm region, so that was the first time actually that I had that I had done field research with them about old believers, and things have sort of continued on since then
0: mm-hmm. and how have you how did you come to write this particular book?
1: Um, well, this particular book is sort of um, a confluence of a, of a couple of things um, a sort of return after a break to thinking about old belief already at this point when I was in graduate school in anthropology at Michigan. Um, and there's sort of two, I guess, intellectual trajectories that this book is situated in and, and which I was thinking about. And the first of them is that this is really a, a historical ethnography, which is uh, a sort of genre of anthropology and a genre of history that is uh, or has been particularly undeveloped in the study of Russia and the former Soviet Union. There's a bunch of anthropology on this region after um, after the end of the Soviet Union, and, and there's always been terrific history. Um, but the insights that can be gained from combining fieldwork and archival research, from thinking about the past through the prism of the present and vice versa, um, is really a vein that I think has been underexplored in this part of the world. And so I really wanted to sort of push this uh, this line. So this book is is based on... Um, over a year of field research in a um, village, a small town in the Urals uh, called Sepich, and uh, also on about eight or nine months of fairly solid archive work in Moscow and in Perum and in some other places. So it's really, uh, throughout the book, I'm trying to sort of use history and anthropology um, uh, complementarily and in tension with each other to, to get a better understanding of what's been going on in this particular place and in Russia more broadly over about three centuries. So that's intellectual trend number one that, that is sort of behind this book. And the second one is more particular to anthropology and the anthropology of religion. And that has been um, the idea that it's a uh, it's a useful thing uh, to think about and to theorize the issue of ethics. And this is really a comprehensive um, historical ethnography of ethics. It tries to work through um, the ways in which people have uh, sought to fashion for themselves ethical lives in changing circumstances in a single place over three centuries. So that's um, the intellectual sort of confluence that's behind this book, these two things.
0: Mm-hmm. Now it is as you said. Your your book is primarily about a, a history of ethics and also morality in this small town of Sepic in Perm. Um, talk a bit about what you mean by ethics. How do you define it?
1: So I, I I have a fairly broad understanding of ethics as these definitions go. I I basically understand it to be a field of um, socially located and culturally informed and historically situated practices. Um, that are undertaken with at least sort of partial um, consciousness, um, uh, uh, some sort of partially conscious orientation towards conceptions of what's good or proper or virtuous. Uh, so that's a fairly broad definition, but let me let me try to say a little bit more about what I mean by it. Um, so what I'm trying to capture here is the way that people seek to act in the world, seek to um, engage in social and cultural practice by orienting themselves to an understanding of, 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 um, of goodness, which could come from a variety of sources from religious texts or from, um, uh, sensibilities about what kind of economic actions are good or bad or political actions. Um, so fairly broad there, I do want to insist and I insist throughout the book that ethics is, um, to be understood as at the same time a social, like cultural and a historical phenomenon. So socially, it matters um, who you are in a sort of social context, how you're able to act, and what counts as good. So it may make a difference between men and women, or old or young, or people of different sort of social classes. So these have important impacts on how um, ethics works. It matters culturally, in the sense of um, uh, there are particular kinds of meaningful action within which ethical practice is situated. So what are the kinds of, uh, of ways, uh, particularly in this one particular village, um, this old believer village that people sought to, to create meaningful lives? Uh, and then the third thing is that it's historically situated, that these things are always changing. And this is really the, um, the main part of what I want to do in, in this book is is track this series of transformations and the sedimentation of different uh, sets of sensibilities of what counts as good or how one tries uh, to accomplish good or virtue in the world. Um, and then the first part of my definition is that it's it's a field of action. So there's no one particular thing. I don't have a list of uh, the five principles orienting ethical action in Sepic. It's a very... Um, uh, diverse and practical field, where people have different conceptions. And, and what I'm trying to do is trace how these different conceptions enter the world at different times. And uh, why would it be that somebody's understanding of ethics at a particular time is more powerful uh, than another person's? So these always are exist in a, in a social field of competition and collaboration. And one of the historical questions is, you know, how do large-scale historical changes, whether it's emancipation in the 1860s or the coming of socialism or the end of socialism uh, change the context of the world such that uh, it creates new kinds of dilemmas and possibilities for people to act ethically.
0: I would imagine too it's also relational. I mean you mentioned the contextual aspect but also in terms of one's location within a, a community but it's also who that person is dealing with uh, the relations between two types of people. I would imagine ethical practice varies say if a young is dealing with an old or someone prominent in the village is dealing with say a lay person
1: absolutely so so and this is and, and it's it's precisely in those sort of uh, social fault lines that a lot of the, um, hist- the, the the sort of engines of historical change become visible right where mm-hmm. um, uh, how is it that you have to change what you the way you act with respect to elders in the context of socialism in the way that you might not have in the context of sort of post-emancipation capitalism, or, or how is it that outsiders who are not people from separate, who are not old right. believers, who are not um, uh, collective farmers uh, or peasants, um, you know, how do you relate to them? What counts and what is effective um, action with relation to different sorts of people? So that's, that's exactly right. And, and, and how the same person acts differently in different contexts is the thing I, I come back to again and again in the book
0: and a lot of people though however sometimes confuse ethics from morality um and morality is another issue that you you deal with um how do what's the difference between the two in in your analytical uh, apparatus
1: yeah i mean this this can go very quickly and very deeply into the weeds of, of sort of moral and ethical philosophy and and, and there's a lot of disagreement and, and and i just sort of make a decision in the book that ethics is basically a domain of of practice mhm Morality is the domain of sort of oughts and shoulds. So one of the things I'm very concerned with in the text is, is how moralizing discourses, so this is the morality part, um, impact or have the power to shape ethical practices. So, for example, um, how does the arrival of a particular preacher, this is a, uh, an important scene in the uh, in the post-Soviet period, the arrival of a, a missionary priest from um uh, not from uh, sort of uh, Western Protestant, sort of the classical mission to the former Soviet world after the end of the Soviet Union, but a, an old believer missionary priest who's very into preaching and very into moralizing discourses, right? This is how you must live. Mm-hmm. This is how you should live in a way that recalls really the, the builders of socialism and uh, the builders of uh, markets after the end of, of serfdom. All of these uh, moralizing discourses brought by outsiders, these sort of uh, very carefully elaborated how you should act. Um, You know, the moral codex for the builder of communism, all this stuff is the domain of morality. But what I'm interested in is how those things uh, have or do not have impacts on life in this town, right? How do they actually change people's practices? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they do, and sometimes they don't, Right? and sometimes they do. In ways that were not at all foreseen or intended by the people who were preaching them. So, so there, for my purposes, and other people who write on these topics in anthropology might do it differently. But for my purposes, that's where I see a useful analytical difference between ethics and morality.
0: Mm-hmm. So there's another. There's also a, an existing tension between. I like the way you put it. What, how one ought to act and how one actually does act. And you're you're Absolutely. interested in the the actual per, the practices of of the ought. <laughs>
1: Yeah, right. It's the practices of the art because the, because in everyday life it never works out it
0: exactly. Works like exactly. To.
1: Although although that moment of striving, right, that mm-hmm. moment of saying I'm going to try to be like this, um, is the one I'm after as a very important moment in uh, the formation of, of of subjects of human subjects and of communities. So and across domains, right? It's not. And, and one of the things that I certainly want to say too. To other anthropologists who work on ethics and morality is that I think it's not just a matter of religion. And and one of the things that I'm arguing in the book is that is that domain of ethical practice can be just as much in the field of trying to build a socialist, you know, rural economy um, as in, you know, trying to live up to the particular precepts of old belief.
0: Certain time. Yeah I would as as one who looks at the at the ethics of of revolutionary russia that's ethics is completely suffused in the soviet project it's incredibly i mean the the amount of detail they spend on say how does one act as a comrade for example is is right. is quite right. revealing um so Okay. Right. So and then, oh, go ahead.
1: And then for me, you know, so so what happens when you know you learn all this stuff about how to act as a comrade, and then what do you do when you go home and your grandmother is this you know very, you know, believing, faithful old believer, and thinks that the way you just learned how to act is is not appropriate? So exactly. What do you do in that context? So
0: exactly. So the other the other poll. Uh, so you're you're primarily looking at this through religion and and old belief in particular talk a bit about old belief uh, for people who aren't really clear on what Russian orthodoxy is and and sure, old belief
1: sure, sure. so uh, the sort of conventional story of who the old believers are that's uh, that's told in in um, a number of textbooks and is sort of out there in the popular imagination is that uh, the Russian Orthodox Church was sort of going along happily until the middle of um, Uh, say, uh, the 17th century uh, when the Patriarch at the time, Patriarch Nikon, in conjunction with uh, the czar, decided that there needed to be some changes made in um, the rituals and services of Russian Orthodoxy in order to update it. And uh, the conventional story goes that a large part of the Russian Orthodox believing population rejected these reforms as being out of step with their experience of orthodoxy and not true to orthodoxy, and that they felt so strongly about this that they preferred to go into schism um, and create a division in the Russian Orthodox Church, then to adapt their practices. Uh, So from that moment forward, from the middle of the 17th century forward, you have the continuation of the mainstream Russian Orthodox Church and also uh, dissenting old believers who are marked by their insistence on retaining those old service books and old rituals. Um, There are uh, various factions of old believers, the biggest one and, and one that has significant import for the history of of this town of Sepich is between priestly and priestless old believers. So priestly old believers um, still retain a church and a hierarchy that looks very much um, uh, in a sort of structural way like the Russian Orthodox Church, um, but is not uh, is and and claims to be the the legitimate remaining Russian Orthodox Church. And then there are these priestless groups of old believers who believe that with these reforms in the 17th century, all sanctity and sacraments and the possibility of a priesthood left the world. And so so there are priestless uh, communities that that don't have an ordained priesthood associated with them. So that's the conventional story. More recently, historians um, have been challenging this narrative and uh, saying that although there are certainly – Old Belief is certainly a powerful movement now and has been. Um, it did not uh, originate with a, a sort of unified mass protest or mass rejection of the uh, Russian Orthodox reforms. There was, in fact, uh, at this point in, uh, in, in Russian history, a wide variety of dissent sort of circulating in lots of different groups of dissenters. And it was only um, somewhat later, as much as 50 or 75 years later, um, into the 18th century that an old believer movement was created out of all of these variety, um, uh, of other groups that were somehow dissenter. So in this version, uh, which is one that I support, and I think the history of Seppich supports, um, uh, you have old belief as a unified movement, whether priestly or priestless, emerging as a sort of conscious creation
0: of, uh, of dis- uh I would Im- i I would imagine that it's also because these are persecuted people uh, in the hands of the state and the church.
1: Yes, there's nothing. Yes, there's there's nothing to um, uh, to sort of round up or solidify um, uh, an opposition like persecution, right? So, so I think that's part of exactly as you say. I think that's part of the. Um, part of the unifying factor here.
0: Talk a bit about old belief in Seppich and in particular, the, the key elements of its ethical repertoire.
1: Uh, sure. So this is really the concern of the first uh, two chapters of the first part of the book is, is um, to talk about the formation in Seppich in the um, uh, 18th and into the 19th century of what I call an ethical repertoire. Uh, ethical repertoire, you know, if we think back to the kind of definition of ethics that I used where there's not sort of a firm set of precepts, it's a set of practice and they change a lot. I use this, this, this concept of an ethical repertoire to try, try to get at the way in which um, things have changed enormously over these three centuries. But there's a, uh, a malleable protein set of expectations about how to live an ethical life that I think we can still discern, uh, even moving through these different contexts, even as different pieces of them change and change, dr- and change drastically. Uh, we can see them as parts of, a, of, a, of an ongoing um, repertoire. And so what I'm wanting to do in the first uh, two chapters, which is based on, uh, largely on archival research, uh, particularly with, with Old Believer manuscripts written in Seppich, uh, and then some other sort of more conventional sources for the, um, uh, for the history of the period, is to elaborate the different pieces of this ethical repertoire that I then trace into the Soviet period and the post-Soviet period, and a lot of them have to do with the fact that this uh, community was was founded uh, as as an old believer community. Uh, It's actually founded twice, and this goes back to my definition of old belief. The the first settlers that we know about in Sepuch were in the um, very late uh, 1600s, 1690s, um, who do seem to have been religious dissenters, but were not at that point calling themselves old believers. And then in 1730 or 1731, uh, a traveling preacher arrives in the town, and he is assertively an old believer. And it seems that he is um, part of this movement of stitching together all of these different dissenting groups into a unified old believer movement. And at that point, we start to get a very developed manuscript record uh, of debates about um, about old belief, about religion, about um, life in the world uh this was uh this town of sepoch and the surrounding areas were part of the Stroganov family land holdings uh so these are uh sort of classic serfs in in the russian sense so there's a lot of debates about how one reconciles the demands of both belief with uh worldly ethics and worldly production and things like that so i use this uh uh, these manuscripts and these other sort of land holding records to elaborate some of the elements of the ethical repertoire that's particular to this place. Um, so I'll just, I'll mention a couple of them that, that are, um, that are important. Um, one of them is that over the course of the, uh, 17th, uh, sorry, sorry, the 18th and 19th centuries, uh, there comes to be a very sharp uh, generational divide with respect to religious practice. Um, people were active, Ritually participating Old Believers of the priestless sort, this has been uh, since its founding, a priestless town. Um, um, so people did not take up the actual practice of Old Belief until uh, later in life. So they worked uh, quite freely in, in, in the world, as they would say, uh, on um, the Stroganoff estates. Um, and fully participating in uh, monetary exchange and uh, sexual lives and marriage lives and reproduction and all this stuff that, from the perspective of active old believers, was sinful and was taking one away from um, the possibility of salvation until the point at which they uh, a spouse dies and, um, and they sort of uh, withdraw from the world into this ascetic, monastically inspired set of practices uh, where the point is to avoid everything to do with the world um, money uh labor that is alienated um, uh sex reproduction any of these things become uh, uh become uh, temptations and to be avoided at all costs so this is this is uh quite particular this very strong generational divide between sort of middle aged people working in the fields um and as serfs. Uh, and then elders at one point um, sort of converting to being active believers and withdrawing from the world um, so that's an important part of the of the local ethical uh, repertoire. Another thing very early on um, is is very developed debates about gender and marriage and uh, and whether um, uh, religious authority can uh, proceed through women or not um, uh, this is, this is uh, a key aspect of debates about ethics as it, as it intersects with uh, um, both religious practice and the sort of organization of the Stroganov family estates in, uh, uh, in the 18th and 19th centuries. So those are two aspects, uh, and, and tracing out these debates allows me then to sort of uh, set a baseline for changes that
0: happen later on. Part of this ethical repertoire goes throughout the history of the town, and it becomes an issue of debate at particular moments in its history.
1: That's right. I mean, I think um, this is my argument, is that we can see elements of uh, even those early debates about, um, I call them gender and generation, um, as a sort of shorthand, we can see elements of that even now in the post-Soviet period that are quite clearly continuations of these earlier things, entirely transformed um, by the Soviet period and, you know, entirely embedded in contemporary global capitalism, but in some ways continuing this sort of long running conversation about uh, how do I act ethically in the world with respect respect to uh, generation and gender Mm -hmm. in both religious and economic spheres.
0: Well your book is is based on three historical moments that allow for this these periods of ethical renegotiation. The first of which is after the abolition of serfdom in the 1860s where the community is split between two uh Old Believer groups, the Maximovsky and the D- uh communities. Talk about this schism and how this symbolized the changing ethical atmosphere in in the, in the town.
1: Right, so this is sort of the puzzle that I that I present is, you know, how do we have an ongoing ethical repertoire, but yet all of this change. And I identify, uh, these three moments, um, uh, the, the period after emancipation, the Soviet period, and then the post-Soviet period where we get particularly dramatic change that hooks into Seppich and creates these new sort of dilemmas, um, and changes. So the first of them is, as you say, after, um, emancipation, where, uh, the until that time unified and as far as we know from the manuscript record fairly harmonious old believers suddenly become the opposite they become incredibly acrimonious and there is a schism within the priestly old believer community around sepich in this area that's called the the upper kama um they that's their term for it just around the the base of the kama river it's a it's a, what, 50, now say 50 miles by 50 miles area. So it's it's not just around Sepich itself. It's a bit spread out. But Sepich was sort of the base um, and one of the most active areas. Uh, so I spend a chapter trying to figure out, along with um, 130 years of people in Seppich, what happened that created these two camps who claimed to be uh, entirely the same in terms of their service books, but completely won't talk to each other. So to this day in Seput you'd have Maximuski and Jominsky um, uh, in the same town or in the same area, but they don't pray together. They don't talk to each other. They're different groups of elders. So this chapter goes through uh, sort of three understandings of what happened and, and pays attention to the way in which this was a moment uh, of rapid change that uh, created... Uh, differences in expectations about ethics that ultimately had this these implications of schism uh, for the community. So um, uh, there's one very lengthy manuscript written by the Maximsky, which um, anathematizes and goes through all of the reasons why the German skia uh, uh, are to be expelled and declared as heretics according to the canons of the seven ecumenical councils. Um, so that's sort of one version of ethics and, and how uh, one is to judge others and relate to others, according to these ancient books. The Germansky also have a manuscript written in response to the Maximsky that says, "No, no, no, you are the ones who are being anathematized. Uh, we are the right ones uh because of these other reasons and it's very interesting the Maximsky version um you would never know that these people were serfs or peasants or did anything other than get together and pray and uh, read the ancient service books. In the skia version, it's quite clear that this is taking place in a massively changing countryside. Um, uh, and many of their accusations against the Maximuskia and against their leader, Maxime, uh, are about him enriching himself and his communities being richer and excluding um, uh, other communities. And so I can compare these, these accounts with actual uh, census and survey data from uh, the Zemstvas at the time, and see how the communities where the Maximusky were most popular were in fact becoming, um, were benefiting a lot more from the sort of post-emancipation uh, agrarian capitalism uh, that's going on, and so that sort of difference in life is is caught up very much in these in these uh, in these disputes, and is part of the reason uh, animating how you uh, animating the the turn uh, to Schism to the uh, to the decision that there's nothing left to do. Uh, there's no unified old believer community left mm-hmm. in this area.
0: Now you mentioned that these these people you can still find in in Seppich this these antagonism between these two communities. How did they preserve this these identities from um, the late 19th century through the Soviet period all um, to up to the present? What are the the basis of memory of this kind of these antagonisms?
1: Um, well, that's an excellent question, and it's one of the things I try to figure out um, in the book. Initially, uh, in the 19th century, um, this was a very, uh, uh, uh regionally based, uh, uh, antagonism. So in general, uh, these priestess old believers, remember there's no priesthood, there's no hierarchy, uh, and it was always a very decentralized operation, right? So there would be a, uh, a community of, of, these elders who would gather in a particular town or a particular village, or even a particular sort of, um, uh, hamlet, you know, much smaller than a village, four or five households, and they would have their own community of elders there. Um, and they were all initially in communion with each other, um, as they would put it. Uh, the schism splits them, and it splits them along geographical lines, those who are closer to Seppich and closer to the sort of hub of agrarian trade and capitalism and markets that Seppich is becoming turned into Maximusky. Um, and, and many of those who are excluded from that sort of domain become uh, Jominsky. So that spatial and economic divide is, is clearly what's going on early on. Um, I think this changes dramatically in the Soviet period when those kinds of distinctions become um, much
0: less important, right? Right. Um, so let's talk about the second moment of ethical reconfiguration uh, in the Soviet period. Uh, talk about Seppich in, in early Soviet period, and in particular how episodes of violence impacted the nego- renegotiation of ethics in in the town.
1: Um, right. So this is so this is really uh, the issue of the second part of the book. Is how does the Soviet period uh, change this? Uh, uh, Whole ethical repertoire again, and throw and throw into confusion and into very practical dilemmas all of these issues of gender and generation and how one relates to different people um, at at different times. And the argument of the entire part, uh, I'll come back to the violence issue, um, is uh, is that one of the ways in which um, the Soviet period reconfigured these things is by um, is by hardening this generational distinction between youth and elders um, and entrenching it. And paradoxically, um, in part due to its, its sort of dogmatic insistence on the lack of another world and, um, and its exclusion of any possibilities for religious practice actually um, uh, enabled old believers to continue um, their own very sharp distinction between this world and the other world. Um, so there's a way in which sort of uh, Soviet expectations about how religion worked uh, enabled the preservation, not only of um, old belief, but also of this distinction between Maximsky and Jerminsky. So that's sort of the paradox I present in the second part is that, um, is that there's um, uh, far from exterminating religion uh, or changing it, although it changed it in many ways, obviously, um, uh, the Soviet period overall um, preserved the possibility for making this very sharp aesthetic distinction between uh, the this world of um, youth and middle generation people and the other world for which elders were preparing. It was not at all uncommon for Communist Party members and good kolkhozniks and all these people to retire and then just grow out their beards and become old believers. Same kind of of shift late in life that was happening in
0: the nineteenth century. Hmm, that's, that's actually quite fascinating because most people, the, the general narrative would assume that you know the Soviet Union or the Soviet system destroyed the bonds of religion rather than re- allowing for their reassertion in 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 a different way.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is part of what I'm wanting to say is that um, is that we have to be very careful about how we think about what the impact of Soviet. Um, uh, anti-religious campaigns and the general organization of Soviet life had on religious practice. It's not uh, a single story. So you asked earlier about violence. Um, collectivization was particularly violent and particularly nasty in uh, in Sepec because these were, in many cases, um, very rich, uh, you know, obviously kulak families. Um, who had done very well in the, in, the, um, in the post-emancipation period and the early part of the 20th century. Um, and entire families, entire, entire villages were, were deported. Um, but when we think about what implications uh, this has for religion in particular, um, there were certainly anti-religious campaigns. Religion was a way in which you could get rid of some of these families, that you couldn't get rid of them another way by accusing them of, of, um, of, of practicing old belief as a subversive um, as a subversive activity, uh, but the fact that there were uh, there was no hierarchy meant that there was um, only minor trouble in finding a new replacement um, after a uh, pastor had been uh, arrested or um, sent off to a labor camp, or in some cases executed. Um, The fact that uh, this was a priestless uh, set of communities and there were no churches, there were none of the sort of archetypical spaces that the Soviet anti-religious establishment was um, sort of primed to shut down. They couldn't be found. Uh, They were not there. People gathered and had gathered for um, hundreds of years in each other's homes um, to pray. So uh, Soviet expectations about religion were sort of calculated and calibrated in one way and they clearly had effects. Um but old believers here were um i think were accustomed to avoiding persecution and had developed um a set of expectations and social structures uh that had long enabled them to um to avoid it, including deferred ritual practice it's you know these were these were regular old um kolhozniks, you know collective farm workers uh who were not really thinking about religion or the other world. It was hard to get, you know, hard to make anything about religion stick on them until such point as they were not so relevant to Soviet labor
0: demands. And I would imagine the Soviet, the Soviet authorities are, are in quite a bind where the, the majority of the religious community are elderly and they can't really go in and bust up the old as, as you know, openly and violently as they may want to in, some, in certain cases.
1: They uh that's right. They can't that I mean they they were they were effective at um at keeping young people away from the religious services. Um so these you know classically these these communities would gather and they would be the old people doing the service and then young people up through, you know, in the in the nineteenth century, probably up till marriage age, in the twentieth century it would have been, you know, younger school children would also attend and it was and it was at it was at that point that they sort of learned. Um, before going off to work and before going off to marry, Um, some of the the practices they learned how to read Slavonic texts and things like this. Um, So the Soviets were successful at that, Um, and they were certainly successful at keeping things out of the public eye, Um, but... Um, they were not particularly successful at the plan of getting rid of old belief. And as a matter of fact, if you read the archives from the Council on Religious Affairs, they're tremendously frustrated because people are telling them there's all these old believers there and they turn up and no one knows who the leader is. Right. You know, it's all old women. Um, you know, it's very, it's very difficult. And of course, the, uh, all of the people who are in positions of power in the Soviet, um, in the Soviet world in, on the local scene, all of their parents the exactly,
0: right? <laughs> so
1: there are competing loyalties here, and and it's in that sort of um, you know talk about relating to different people differently in different ethical ways at different times. You know, when their inspector comes and you're the um, you're the person responsible for um, anti-religious propaganda and seppage, but your family, you know, at the eldest um, uh, sort of level is the practicing old believers what do you do i mean those are the kinds of things i try to deal with in the book
0: okay so one of the main one of the areas you talk about where the soviet state is speaking of of attempts by the soviet state to influence the ethics in 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 Sepec. one one area was um its moral vision in terms of uh, notions of labor and exchange um how how did moral and material incentives for labor refashion ethical subjects and moral communities in Seppage?
1: Right, so this, so this goes to the, the point I was making that it's not really just a study of ethics and religion and that even for anthropologists of religion and ethics, um, uh, it's useful to think much more broadly about how these things happen. So I spend uh, a substantial chapter thinking about uh, the ethics of labor um, and the ethics of, of of practical organization of Soviet collective and state farms. And I, make, um, I think here about the sort of class... Soviet state, try to um, get labor out of its citizens and solve this perpetual problem of labor shortage uh, and getting people to work. And what are the things that are exchanged um, here? And what are the sort of uh, contexts of, of power? Um, so I talk about uh, uh, the sort of classic topic of um, of, of labor days and the organization, the collective in the period of, of collective farming. Um, in the uh, sort of 19, early 1930s to 19, mid-1960s, and then Sepic becomes a very uh, famous state farm in, 19, in the middle 1960s uh, and is until 1991. So, and, and curiously, one of the main uh, ways in which the director of State Farm Seppich, uh sought to um, create uh, ethical socialist citizens is by using um, rituals. Um, uh, there's a famous film, which is sort of a propaganda film called Seppich Weddings, which is, um, uh, which was shown on TV frequently and made in Seppich about uh, the success of the director in keeping labor, uh, keeping young people in the town to work the fields. While this is in the Brezhnev period, the much more um, popular tendency is for people to leave the cities and and it's the sort of joys of rural life and weddings and young people all together and outside at dances and things like that just and you know if you sort of look past the propaganda aspects of it this was a significant part of the lives of many of these people who did choose to stay is the participation in sort of um, uh, youthful rituals um, not having a great deal of socialist content um, but were particularly or at least that people understood them or, or, or that wasn't the the way in which people related to them but it was an important part of ethical practice in this uh, in this town for young people and these this very much became um, the sort of um, uh, way in which young people related to each other and and to the state farm in the, in the later Soviet period in particular so this has this has implications for the broader picture because um, it's the one side of the generational divide that I'm talking about in chapter two, right? Where all these young people are becoming very involved in staying in Sepich and very involved in sort of the, this world of socialism at the same time as uh, their elders are trying to withdraw from precisely that world.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, well, let's let's talk about the other uh, world and, and how people, uh, the elders in particular, who, 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 Took on this aesthetic life, uh, religious life later in life. How did uh, religious practice? How did they conduct religious practice a- a- in the Soviet period? And and what tenets of old belief um, did they maintain?
1: Right. So uh, quietly would be the first answer. Um, to the extent that that practice continued, it was it was uh, as it was across the Soviet period, often um, at night. Um, With blankets over the windows, people would assemble uh, in each other houses to pray by ones or twos rather than as big groups. Um, um, Things that changed um, uh, include a massive feminization of uh, particularly leadership. Um, but this is, um, and again, in concert with uh, with some broader things that are visible in religion across the Soviet and the uh, former socialist world, um, men became much more identified with um, uh, public labor and communism and, um, and the state farm and things like this. And women were as well. Um, but and this is one of those sort of double burden moments. They were not disassociated from... The um, domestic spheres in which uh, religion was still practiced. So, um, uh, so particularly as um, the Soviet period goes on, you get uh, a population of old believers that's almost exclusively women, um, and this is the sort of Soviet era um, uh, version or extension of the conversation that was going on back in the um, you know 1700s, 1800s about. Uh, whether women should be in charge of religious communities or not, or um, who and how, but, but this changes drastically um, in the Soviet period. Um, And, and uh, it becomes, as I've been saying, a much older thing. It used to be that pastors, the people who who headed these small decentralized communities were themselves um, a bit younger. They were not the oldest of the, of the old. They were probably a bit younger. Some of them were even middle generation Um, uh, sort of working age people who were elected to be leaders of religious communities. And that um, sort of mediating role of pastors between um, the younger world and the older world disappears. And that it becomes a very much, um, uh, I call this the geriatricization of of old belief in the Soviet period. So feminization and geriatricization are the two main uh, uh, trends that we see for for believers. But on the other hand, you get... um, As I've been saying, this sort of preservation of the ability to make this sharp ascetic distinction that is sort of characteristic of the ethical repertoire of uh, these particular priestless old believers, much more so than um, either in the markets of the post emancipation period or in the markets of the post Soviet period. uh, which turn out to be much more effective at chipping away at asceticism than overt anti-religious campaigns. <laughs>
0: That's, that, what a great irony! And what happens to the the tradition of manuscript production in in the Soviet period? Oh, excellent
1: point. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is um, this is something we haven't talked about, but a crucial element of of the ethical repertoire and and of um, uh, the way it is materially manifest is um, is through the uh, circulation and production of manuscripts. So. Um, I talked about the manuscripts written by the Maximsky and Germansky, um, uh, and a massive manuscript t- tradition um, in this town uh, and in this region. Uh, production and the copying of manuscripts went on uh, full force into the early part of the 20th century. It then begins to taper off. Um, I think the the degree of literacy in Slavonic, not necessarily in Russian, but in Church Slavonic of, of many of the elders sort of drops off and you end up with uh, a bunch of manuscripts and sort of minutes of councils that I try to read and um, about things like this in the 20th century, but they're um, much less beautiful um, ornate uh, Church of written on the sort of backs of, you know, classic Soviet notebooks
0: and, mm-hmm.
1: and things like this. So, um, so the production of new manuscripts drops off, but interest in these old manuscripts uh, increases tremendously among uh, Russian scholars, Soviet scholars, starting in the, um, 1960s, 1970s, and these archaeographers I mentioned at the very beginning of our of our conversation, um, really scholars of ancient books and old uh, Cyrillic manuscripts, turn up in Steppech and in in dozens of old believer communities across the former Soviet Union, looking for these old manuscripts in the 1970s, and um, they actually become some of the biggest allies and friends of these old women who are old believers, because they're interested in the manuscripts. They can read them. They can talk about them. Uh, they're very powerful allies to have. You know, I know someone from Moscow is not a small thing to say uh, in uh, in the context of, of local politics and the Urals. So, um, so manuscript production turned uh, declines, but the interest in manuscripts and the sort of traffic in manuscripts where um, manuscripts are being collected from this town and taken to the collections in Moscow uh, frequently, the archaeographers traded manuscripts rather than just collecting them right so if you had an old worn version of a particular service book, they would trade you for a newer one that you could use, um, but take the one with with historical significance back to Moscow to
0: study it and, right so these these Soviet scholars are are quite instrumental in the preservation of the traditions of of old belief
1: yeah absolutely they're they're they're, they're quite instrumental they're they're instrumental in um, um, in really invalidating these old women's, you know, the remaining in the 70s, 80s, um, you know, these remaining old women's beliefs and practices. And there's and there's quite a, a touching uh, exchange of letters between the, the scholars in Moscow, um, and to some extent in Perm as well, and um, and old believers. Expeditions happened every summer, but all through the winter, these these folks would write back and forth to each other, and they were clearly um, became very close Friends, for the scholars, you know, these old believers were the embodiment of ancient Russia. Uh, these largely dissident scholars, um, at least to, to some extent, were not particularly enamored of the Soviet project. And, and here was something outside of socialism for them. And for the, for the old believers, these were, these were powerful allies and people who were interested and friends and, and people who um, uh, provided a lot of validation.
0: And it's interesting, too, because in the 60s and in the 70s, you do have a number of Soviet scholars who are really trying to rebuild or uh, through their scholarship, whether it's in in studying the medieval period or in these archaeographers, in your case, they're trying to revive Russian national traditions and kind of facilitate the rebirth of uh, or the revitalization of a Russian nationalism. Uh, Would you say that this is part of their, their mission?
1: I, yes, I mean, I think it's part of that. Well, I think it's not the only thing they were doing. I mean, they're studying old beliefs. They're doing. They're actually producing a lot of scholarship. But, but yes, I mean, it, the, to the extent that this was political, and it could be only very carefully talked about that way, because it is still religion, and and it is still the Soviet Union. Uh, but, but you know, the idea was look. You know, here in this village there are people who are preserving ancient Russian ways and ancient Russian texts. And we can see that because they still use the service book, which was around in you know, the eighteenth century. Um, and so that's a little bit of a caricature. It's it, that's that's not really a fair way to, to put it. But it was certainly cast as the discovery of ancient Russian traditions alive and well, and preserved by this valiant. Um, community that had been seeking to keep the world at bay for many years, many, many centuries.
0: Now, the collapse of communism is, is the third historical moment in, in your story of ethical redefinition. But unlike the previous two, you say that the struggle for ethical reconfiguration is unstable and open-ended. Why why do you say this?
1: Um. Well, I think there are a couple things going on here. This is the third part of the book in which I deal I shift instead of dealing with sort of history and manuscripts and archives, I deal with with present-day uh field work and, and talking to people and living in Seppich and and chasing cows and digging up potatoes and, and all the stuff that you do um, when you're you know living in a rural community for uh for a year. And my sense at that point um was that uh, to the extent that there was a, another major reconfiguration of ethical life going on, it was still uh, uh, very uncertain. And people were still, um, you know, my primary field work was in 2001, uh, 10 years after the end of uh, the official end of, of socialism. And um, people were still puzzling through what to do. Um, so it's that actual representation of trying to figure out. Um, things in the wake of a large-scale collapse that I'm wanting to to get across And there's also, um, uh, for my own purposes, I'm writing against uh, what was at that time uh, still the major tendency in social science, which was to erase this sort of uncertainty and to say, well, now um, what comes after socialism is, well, we know, markets and democracy. And I was wanting to push back and say, well, no, actually, on the ground, it's incredibly uncertain what's happening. People are debating all this stuff. Things are rapidly changing uh, in political, economic, social, cultural, and religious ways, and it's important to recognize and work through and see the historical location of that um, uh, uh, of that set of dilemmas, um, rather than you know be confident and, and
0: certain about what's emerging. And now, ten say ten years after you did your field work, um, do you see a, a, a more a kind of consolidation of what post-Soviet ethics in this community is, is about.
1: It's a little hard to say. I mean, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm onto a somewhat different project now and I, I go back to Seppich when I can, you know, I've been back a few times, but you don't get the same sense in a quick visit to visit friends as a, as I did in a year. Um, so I think that it's probably the case that some things are solidifying a little bit more now. Um, um I think you know i would I would say that things are, are are a little more uh settled down and in and particular the uh, I mean, one of the sticking with old belief for the moment one of the one of the things that has changed tremendously is that uh Sepage is no longer entirely a priestless old believer town um, a, uh, a community of priestly old believers um, uh has has um, uh, not taken over, but established a very strong presence in town. And I think that will probably continue. Um, and that's part of the story I tell in this third part is, is that um, is, I wouldn't say that priestless old belief is disappearing, but it was challenged in a way that it has not been in uh, in 300 years in this town by a very uh, active um, missionary priest from a priestly community, of well, believers in the nearby city um, who was intent on building churches and converting people all around um, this era, this area, and who was working in collaboration with a new post-Soviet possibility with the, with the director of the former state farm, the privatized state farm. So there's a, uh, that sort of alliance between um, church and state at the very local level has, has been a new possibility in the post-Soviet period and had serious implications for the ways in which people, uh, work through the sort of religious dimension of ethics in the post-Soviet period.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, let's let's talk about the 1990s and and the ethical confusion of the period. Now, what were some of the main issues that concerned um, uh, the people of Seppich in that time? Um,
1: well, you know, I, I I wrote this project, you know, as a grant and as a, as, a, as a prospectus and everything to go think about religion and think about old belief. And when I turned up, this is not what people wanted to talk about. I mean, they would a little bit, but they were kind of like, well, why do you want to talk about all the old ladies um, and old belief and religion? What's really of concern to me is um, how are we privatizing this uh, state farm Seppich? And is the privatized uh, commercial, I call it the commercial farm which is a sort of uh, post-Soviet cooperative, um, um, is it going to hold together? Is it going to uh, go bankrupt as a business, and uh, will it all be – will we all sort of fall apart into uh, individual households? So Mm -hmm. this distinction between um, having a collective farming enterprise um, in the post-Soviet period and uh, just having uh, a set of households with no uh, place to actually go and work uh, was one of the major concerns of of post-Soviet separation.
0: And how did this kind of these concerns reshape the the the, the contours of the moral community in Seppich? I mean, in terms of chozian um issues of money, um, how did they regard these things?
1: Right. So 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 we're you know we're back again uh, in the in the domain of, of ethical subjects in in the world as people there uh, as as old believers there. Might say so. This is sort of picking up the conversation about moral and material incentives, and 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 how do people work, and what are the what are the relevant communities of labor um, and money, and 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 I trace two in two different chapters. One is um, a consideration of the household sector of the economy, which in as across the um, rural areas of the former Soviet Union, has become much more important than it used to be. Uh, people have turned to their own barns and their own backyards to make money. So, uh, so this becomes very important. And I talk about um, issues of social stratification in particular in these different households, who is able to make more money and how and what the diagnoses um, and how how people evaluate that and what kinds of connections uh, there are among these households. So um, I have a chapter that focuses on uh, the flow of money and moonshine among different households in exchange for labor and how we can uh, track social stratification in town by seeing who pays whom uh, for what, with what um, who you pay moonshine to, who you pay money to um, uh, these are diagnostics of, of emerging levels of social stratification
0: and, and now when it comes to the practice of old belief uh, what kind of ethical dilemmas does the, did the old believer face in the 1990s and, and also what kind of issues do they face today you mentioned the priest issue but what right. other so, things. so this is
1: so I mean I guess the major way I frame this is that is that the what's going on in the world has changed dramatically once again, as in the Soviet period, as in the post emancipation period in the household sector in, um, in these new relationships of you know the commercial the, the, the state farm is no longer the main it's the main business in town, but it no longer has state functions in the way that it did in the Soviet period. So what? So this is the third time in the book that I asked this question. How do these changing relationships in this world create new dilemmas for old believers? And uh, and one of them is, as I mentioned, the um, the um, director of the uh, commercial farm, uh, who was in a uh, previous incarnation the director of state farms, which. Um, struck up this alliance with this priest from out of town, and the uh, the church, the new church was built um, with state farm funds and the state farm, uh, sorry, they call it, they still call it the state farm, um, which is why I sort of slipped into the Soviet speak, but it's really the commercial farm has built this, uh, privatized commercial farm has built this uh, this church, and and this priest just turned up to um, uh for services once a month and by universal acclamation, he's very um, uh, deeply knowledgeable and the services are beautiful and well run. Um, and uh, there's no question even for most of the priestess old believers in town that this guy knows what he's doing. And it has sort of put them on the defensive because a lot of these old women, they're not quite sure which prayers to read anymore. Uh, they're not quite as... Um, uh, assertively proficient as this very young and masculine and assertive and confident priest. But on the other hand, this priest is quite clearly part of the world, right? I mean, the the whole church was built by commercial farm money. And, um, you know, is this, um, is this an inappropriate mixing of the worlds of the kind of thing that was, you know, that would put one's soul in mortal danger for the ascetics of the old days in Seppich, right? So here's a kind of dilemma, right? Do I go to the new church or uh, do I stick with these old ladies? In the new church, it looks, um, uh, it, it looks like they, you know, this priest knows what he's doing and the rituals are effective and, and it's beautiful and it's all done the right way. Um, but on the other hand, it's very closely implicated in the relationships of this world. That is worrying, Um, so those are kind of the things that people have to make decisions about.
0: Right. And I would imagine too, I mean, the priest is kind of a symbol of this too, but this world is increasingly encroaching on the other world in terms of technology, in terms of labor flows, money, uh, and how one lives their kind of postmodern life.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, um, I think that's right. This world is encroaching uh, to a greater extent in the Soviet period. Um, you know, in that, in the chapter where I talk about the exchange of moonshine and rubles, I also talked about the exchange of dollars. I mean, people there were, uh, you know, as quick to exchange $100 bills as anyone else in the, you know, in the 1990s in Russia. Um, so yes, this world is becoming more, um, more present and much broader. Although, you know, it always was to some extent there as a threat. And certainly in the post-emancipation period, very similar sort of um, marketization bringing unfamiliar forces and unfamiliar people um, uh, so that's really the comparison set in this particular town is is the other the earlier period of marketization
0: well it's a it's a fascinating book and I, I, I really encourage everyone to read it um, I, I learned a lot not just about old belief but a, a way to look at ethics over a long period of history um, it's, it's incredibly informative most analytically and information um, so just to wrap up the interview, uh, what are you working on now?
1: Uh, well, I'm still I'm still working on a project in the Perm region, um, but it is no longer in Sepech. Uh It's much. It's going to be a, a broader um, ethnography of the Perm region, and it's only going to be in the post Soviet period. As much as I liked the historical part of this, this this um, of the, of the earlier book, this is going to be a, a shorter term project, and it's about um, uh, the uh, emergence of the Perm region as a significant um, oil-producing region in the post-Soviet period, and what kinds of implications this has had on a regional level for the reconfiguration of culture and society. So, I'm interested in things like um, how oil and gas companies are involved in corporate social responsibility projects, uh, how um, uh, an oil boom at the local level is felt and has uh, implications for the production of culture. Um, and things like this. So, in some ways, I'm 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 continuing this line that I had in the first book about trying to think about the intersection of political economy and culture in the practical making of lives. Um, but in some ways, in now thinking um, about the oil industry, I'm quite far from Zepich uh, in the sort of social and cultural landscape of the of the
0: Param region. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I look forward to seeing since oil plays such a and natural gas plays such a huge role in, in, in contemporary Russian life. I, I can't wait to, to see what you come up with.
1: Well, it doesn't. And, and most of the approaches these days are at the level of, you know, the Kremlin and the oligarchs. Exactly. And all the stuff And I'm trying to do sort of, a, uh, maybe not a worm's eye view, but at least a, uh, a regional level view of how these things actually have implications for reshaping people's
0: lives. Well, great. Wonderful. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me about your book.
1: Well, thank you for the questions. It's been, it's been a, it's been a great pleasure to talk to you, Sean.
0: I've been speaking with Doug Rogers about his book, The Old Faith in the Russian Land, Historical Ethnography of Ethics in the Urals. I hope you enjoyed the interview. Once again, I'm Sean Gillery, your host for New Books in Russian Eurasian Studies. If you're interested in hearing more interviews by the New Books Network, please go to newbooksnetwork.com. And be sure to tune in next time when I talk to Daniel Treisman about his book, The Return, Russia's Journey from Gorbachev to Medvedev. Until then, goodbye
1: оттого того-то знать не весел дом, в котором мы живём, над лампочку повесить. Денег всё не соберём.